All right. Today is the last day of the church year. If you're following the liturgical calendar, that means today is Christ the King Sunday. And so this morning, what we did is we looked at the gospel reading, which was Matthew chapter 25. Does anybody know the reference? Matthew 25, 31 to... Remember where it ended? 46, yes. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. As we begin to look at this passage, we noticed it became obvious it's a passage about judgment. And then we immediately realized there's some problems because it's judgment based off what? Works. Not only that, it's judgment where he calls the nations, right? Um, And it's about how people treated the least of his brethren, And then there was just lots of factors about it that seemed different, that seemed odd. And we tried to work through all of that as much as possible. Now, this morning, just to make sure that we're on the same page, this morning we we spent a little bit of time looking at at the very first verse. I think it's Matthew 25, 31 which refers to Jesus, the king coming or his, his, in his coming. And we, we looked at that Greek word. Well, I want to, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I don't know if you'll be able to hear this, but hopefully you can. I'll, I'll try to, I wish I would have brought in a Bluetooth speaker, but I did not. I'm going to play the audio where I heard their explanation of what that word meant. And it, it, it's completely different than what we found. All right. So here we go. Now, to understand this, firstly, we need to understand the word coming in Greek. So, because this parable is about the coming of the Son of Man. The word coming in Greek is parousia, and that literally means presence. But it can also mean appearing or visitation. It's used a lot in the Bible, and particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, and 20 times total in the New Testament. We know from other Greek literature that parousia usually means Uh, describes a visitation of a king to a city he has previously conquered. So the visitation of a king... Okay, now, parousia, I I don't know how I was uh, pronouncing it this morning, but parousia, the, the thing that we wanted from that, if that Greek word was accurate, then that would really fit the Revelation 19 setting. But when we looked up the Greek word that's translated coming in Matthew 25... It was not parousia, right? It was a completely different Greek word. So let's at least do this. Let's at least do this. Let's, let's go to the, I, 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 this is not a part of my original plan tonight, but I always like to make sure that, you know, we verify and we try to make sure exactly what's going on. So if you have the Blue Letter Bible app, I don't know how well this is going to work. I'm going to look up the word coming and I'm going to see how many times it shows up in the, the Gospel of Matthew. Okay. Right, I'm going to go to the Gospels. All right, um, it shows up uh, 35 in 35 verses in the uh, in the Gospels. All right, and Matthew, I don't know how many. The first time we see it is in Matthew 8:28. Ten times. Okay. Oh, just in Matthew. Okay. All right, got you. Now, in 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 Matthew, in any of those ten, is it that Greek word, parousia? Okay, I'll start Matthew eight twenty eight. You'll jump. To, uh, you jump to Matthew sixteen twenty eight. Okay, how about sixteen twenty eight? I'm going to go to Matthew twenty four three. Okay, I'm I'm in Matthew twenty four three, 
And it is... Oh, Matthew 24, 3. Listen, Matthew 24, 3. Here we go. You ready? Strong's G, 3952. Parousia. 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 He says he pronounces it completely different than ever. <laughs> Who knows how to actually say the word, all right? Parousia, all right? Or Perusia, all right? But uh, please note... Perusia is the coming arrival advent, the future visible return from heaven of Jesus to raise the dead, hold the last judgment, set up formally and gloriously the kingdom of God. All right? Um, that was 24, hang on, 24, is it three? Uh, okay, so 24, three, 24, seven. Okay. Um, Yeah, 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 it will show you. All right, but not 25, uh, 31, all right? So, hey, I don't know if he just assumed that because of the rest, because that's the Olivet Discourse, right? So the whole thing is the Olivet Discourse, and time and time again, he uses parousia, the the way he pronounced it, um, over and over and over, and then all of a sudden in 25, 31, he doesn't. Why does he change Greek words? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there's some great significance there, but I I wanted to at least try to figure out where it was coming from. It's coming from the rest of the, uh, from the Olivet Discourse, because he uses it a number of times in the Olivet Discourse. Why it's not, not every time, I know. So he kind of, I don't know, is it what? Is it about three and three? Is it about split? Four of the six times, okay. Right. So, either one, see, this is always hard. Either one, he didn't, it's just kind of interchangeable and, you know, I, whichever Greek word he used, I, I, who knows, who knows? But it's one of those things, I don't know, if, do you make a big deal out of it? Do you not? We, for our, what we wanted, so ever, make sure you understand this, we wanted it to be in 2531 because we thought that would immediately connect it to Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. However, it's not the Greek word, so just because we want it, we can't make it what it, we want it to be, right? We can't do that. So I just wanted us to at least address that. I don't want to spend all night on that, but anybody else wants to do more work on it this week who's listening online, feel free, dive in and go to town and just have fun, okay? And if you find something. Oh, four times in 24. All right. All right. And, it's, and, and yeah. About a conquering king, I know. I know. But it does talk about setting up a kingdom. Right? Advent, okay. All right. Kingdom. Okay, so it does talk about setting up a kingdom. All right. But to me, so so but you see how that Greek word then would fit perfectly with Revelation 19? Yeah, it would be perfect for Revelation 19. So, uh, but our only problem is 2531, he doesn't use that word. Okay, so I don't know why, but he doesn't. Okay, so I, I, I don't have any definitive answers there, but we wanted to at least address it. I know, it's used a lot of different ways. 
Oh, yeah, it, yeah, it can be. So even, so even if the Greek word was there, it's not definitively that's what it means, right? Because it has various meanings. It has various meanings. So, um, so yeah, that, it, so, yeah. <laughs> but once again, I, here's what I want you to hear. What we were listening to at the podcast, you know what it's dedicated to every day? Exegeting the lectionary. That's a, that's a, a podcast dedicated to nothing but exegeting the lectionary. And guess what they did? And their exegesis, they did what? They, they inserted a meaning to a word, a word that's not even there. And they inserted a meaning to a word that we don't even know if can be 100% dogmatically asserted. Right? Did you have something else there? Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's good. Wait, 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 so, see, he made it sound like it's used over and over and over throughout the Gospels. That means all the other times, well, coming is not used that many times in Matthew, but the point is, the first time is, is the Olivet Discourse, right? So, yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know where that came from, but that's why we check it. That's why we verify it. That's why we listen. That's why we consider. That's why we think, and that's why I, I cannot stress this enough. That any, any, when you do your own personal Bible study, or especially as pastors, you don't just go find a tool, listen, and go, this is true. You have to verify, 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 verify. So we looked at that. We looked at that. But the bottom line is, by the time we got done, I think we did a pretty, at least my estimation, I thought we did a decent job on Matthew 25, right? I thought we looked at it. I thought we came up with all the possible meanings. And I think we felt at least, we feel that it has to have something to do with the judgment on Gentiles and how they treated Israel. That's the best we could come up with, right? We know it's not perfect, right? Because that's, that's like judging them based off what they do. So, yeah, I mean... It, it raises lots of issues, but we worked on it. But the one thing we did discover in trying to figure all of this out is that clearly the judgment in Matthew 25 is different than, say, the judgment in Revelation 20. And the minute we see that, then we immediately have to go, well, is it possible that there's more than one judgment? So what we're going to do is we're going to consider... Once again, as we always do, we're going, to pres- we're going to approach it as a hypothesis and we're going to test it. And we're going to use Schofield because Schofield definitely believed there was more than one judgment. As stated or as someone uh, summarized, C.I. Schofield, a prominent theologian and author, proposed a framework of seven judgments in his teaching. These judgments are based on his interpretation of biblical passages and are meant to explain different aspects of God's judgment throughout history and in the future. Now, I'm going to read this paragraph again. I've got to be very careful here because this could turn into an entire hour. But I'm going to read that paragraph again and I want you to listen to it carefully, okay? Because there is a very important statement in this that I think we, as Christians, I know it's going to make us uncomfortable, but we have to acknowledge this. In this church, we talk about it all the time. Other Christians don't like when I talk about it, but here we go. You ready? Listen carefully and see if you can catch it. C.I. Schofield, 
a prominent theologian and author, proposed a framework of seven judgments in his teachings. These judgments are based on his interpretation of biblical passages and are meant to explain different aspects of God's judgment throughout history and in the future. Did you hear the phrase? They are based on his interpretation of biblical passages. They're based on his interpretation of biblical passages. Are you ready for this? Every theological system is based on someone's interpretation. Every theological system, doesn't matter reformed, not reformed, doesn't matter charismatic, non-charismatic, doesn't matter if you're sacramental, non-sacramental, doesn't matter what you are. Everything is based off someone's interpretation. Based off someone's interpretation. Now, on one hand, why should that bother us? Okay, well, first, we're all reading the same Bible, so why are we coming up with radically different interpretations? That should bother us. Number two, now, now this, this is kind of... Uh, This is just a point that you'd have to consider. If every theological system is based off someone's interpretation, then the question is, is the Bible the final authority or is someone's interpretation the final authority? Everyone see the subtle subtle difference there? Everybody see that? If all theological systems are based off someone's interpretation, then you could argue that what really is the authority is someone's interpretation. So then how can you or me and anyone listening online, how can we ensure that the scriptures are the authority and not someone's interpretation? Well, the only thing we could even, and this is not even a guarantee, but all we can do is whenever we see an interpretation, whenever we see a theological system, whenever we see a doctrinal statement, we acknowledge that's someone's interpretation. And then what we, what should we do? Then we have to go do the extensive entire, the entirety of one's life, because you have to dedicate your entire life to it, to doing what? Study, 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 uh, challenge, question, challenge, question. And I'm just going to be blunt, that doesn't happen. If you take the amount of hours, if you take all of the doctrines and theological concepts that Christians believe and say, and they will, when, when Christians believe a theological perspective, what do they assume? It's right, and anyone who doesn't believe it is wrong, and they may go so far as to say they're not saved, they're a heretic, and they're going to hell. Right? That's a, that's a gigantic claim. Does everybody understand? That's a gigantic claim. So if you're going to make said claim, well, then you better have what? You better have, I'll just come over here to my book bag, you better be able to pull out a number of notebooks and be able to show what? Your work. It's amazing that we, we have no problem when a math teacher says, show, show us your work. But in theology, we don't require anyone to show the work. And I, I've, I've, for years, I've grown sick and tired of it. I'm tired of people saying something is wrong. And you're like, well, then show me what you've done to prove it. 
And then when they start, and typically when they start arguing, what do they do? They, well, they may say, I think, but inevitably they run home, hit Google, and then they, they pull up someone's interpretation that they agree with. Still, impl- still demonstrating what? That their belief system is, is hinges on someone's interpretation. And if your belief system hinges on someone's interpretation, the Protestant Reformation was a failure. Right? Because the whole thing with the Protestant Reformation is that the church did not have said power to interpret. We have the power to interpret. And then it's our job to interpret and to judge. Well, if it's your power, if it's, you have the power and you have the responsibility to do it, don't you think at a minimum you should do what? Show your work. No one wants to show your work. I, I am so tired of that. I'm so tired of that in Christianity. Everyone can just say, you're wrong, 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 you're wrong. And it's like, oh my goodness. And then everyone thinks that their interpretation is authoritative. It's one thing to interpret the Bible. It's another thing to look at someone in the face and say, you're wrong. That's a huge statement. So just make sure we understand this, that this is whose interpretation? Schofield's. Now, how do I like to handle interpretations? I like to handle interpretations as theological hypotheses. It's their theory. It's their, their, their hypotheses, their best educated guess. And then our job is to take what they put forth and do what? To understand it, consider it, maybe do a little bit of testing of it. All right, so are we ready? All right, we're going to go through these relatively quick. Here we go. Um, I, I, if for anyone using the, I think, 1917 version, I'm on page 1,133, or you can look at John chapter 12. You can look at John chapter 12, and you should see a note under, on mine, uh, these notes fall under verses 25 to 48. All right. And here is the the paragraph that we need. Everyone ready? Here we go. 1917 Schofield uh, Bible, page 1133. Here we go. The seven judgments. So immediately, Schofield's interpretation declares there's how many judgments in the Bible? Seven. There are seven. Here we go. The one he has, the one he has listed here as number one is the judgment of Jesus Christ as bearing the believer's sins. The judgment of Jesus Christ right? I'll read that again if we need it uh, need to. right? The judgment of Jesus Christ, as being the believer, uh, as bearing, I, I should say, not believing, as bearing the sins, uh, bearing the believer's sins. The sins of believers have been judged in the person of Jesus Christ, lifted up on the cross. All right. So what is judgment number one? It's a judgment that is poured out on whom? On Jesus Christ, because he is bearing the believer's sins. 
The sins of believers have been judged in the person of Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross. The result was the death for Christ and justification for the believer who can never again be put in jeopardy. Now, he gives us a long list of scriptures here, okay? But we're going to just kind of go through them and try to just understand them, and then maybe some point we can come back and do more work on them, all right? Now, what is probably significant about this judgment? Well, if, and I want you to think about this just from a logical perspective. If Christ was judged for my sin, right? then what can never be used against me to prove that I'm not a Christian? My sin, because all my sin has been judged on Christ. Which immediately begins to destroy which argument? Lordship. How can I look at you and go, hey, hey, you're doing this and this and this and this, that proves you're not saved. No, all of those sins have been paid for in Christ. So what are you doing? Either they were judged in Christ or they weren't. So you can't look to a sin to say that I'm not saved when my sin has been judged in Christ. So it's a judgment though. That judgment is poured out on whom? It's poured out on Christ. The wrath of God is poured out on him. And Christ then, in a sense, drinks all of the cup, every drop. And what do we call this uh, from a, a theological perspective? Propitiation. He satisfies God's wrath on my behalf. So that's what he calls judgment number one. There's a lot of scripture here. Please understand, he gives, and if I look at all of these scriptures, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I mean, there's a lot, okay? But that's the first one. That's the first one. Everybody okay with that one? Everybody understand? Uh, that's not a controversial one, right? That, that's not controversial, right? The judgment of Christ as bearing the believer's sins, the sins of believers have been judged in the person of Jesus Christ, lifted up on the cross. The result was death for Christ and the justification for the believer who can never again be put in jeopardy. Why can I never again be put in jeopardy? Because God's wrath has been satisfied on my behalf. Fully, completely, totally. All right? Now, look at page, uh, if you're using the 1917, 1222. 1222. And this is 1 Corinthians. The end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. All right, are you ready? Here is the next judgment. He calls this, we're going to call this self-judgment. Self-judgment. The first judgment is the judgment of Christ. The second is self-judgment. All right, everybody ready? Okay, here we go. Self-judgment is not so much the believer's moral condemnation of his own ways or habits as, uh, as of himself, 
for allowing such ways. Self-judgment avoids chastisement. If it, okay, I'm gonna read this again. Self-judgment is not so much the believer's moral condemnation of his own ways or habits as of himself uh, for allowing such ways. Self-judgment avoids chastisement. If neglected, the Lord judges and the result is chastisement, but never condemnation. So in a roundabout way, self-judgment basically is what? I did, he didn't really explain it very good there, but what, what, what would be self-judgment in his, his way of describing it? Yeah, you're looking, you're looking at your own life. You're acknowledging it that it is sin. You're saying that is sin, that behavior is wrong. And you do that in order to, one, have a right fellowship with God, right? Because it's, it's not going to lead to your condemnation. And to avoid what? Chastisement. To avoid chastisement. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, you definitely don't want to commit the sin again. Or absolutely. But you're still going to sin. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Now, he connects this, obviously, if you look at the, uh, if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. Everybody see that passage? 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. For if we would... Judge ourselves. We should not be judged. Now, when he says not be judged, he's referring... What's the context there? What's the context of this passage? The Lord's Supper. How do we judge ourselves at the Lord's Supper? We examine our lives, right? We examine our lives. We, we, we take time to remember what? The death of Jesus Christ. What are we remembering in the death of Jesus Christ? That he was judged. Yeah, he was judged for my sin. So now, I, since I'm remembering that he was judged for my sin, then I consider my life and acknowledge that sin. Now, yes, do I want to never commit it again? I, yes, that's the goal. But it's more of acknowledging it Agreeing with God, it is a sin, obviously trying to turn from it, but it's really designed to avoid chastisement because what kind of chastisement can happen with uh, the Lord's Supper? Sickness or death, right? So obviously it's very important, all right? So what's the first judgment? Of Christ. Second, self-judgment, where we judge ourselves. And Hey, this, oh, let's, this is very, 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 very important, very important. All right. I don't want to get too far off this, but this could be an entire sermon. When we judge ourselves, what is the basis of that judgment? Scripture. Alone. The reason I say that is when we start judging ourselves, there's a million factors that can get involved, right? We can judge ourselves based on maybe how we were raised. We can judge ourselves based on maybe how we perceive what other people think about us. We can judge ourselves based off our own feelings, our own emotions, and guess what? All of that will lead you to maybe, depending on your personality, it may lead you to total despair, despondency, depression, and suicide. Right? Other people, like I, that, that, that aren't really bothered if they, if they feel. Some people, you can feel totally defeated and want to just die, right? It's, 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 it's a, just an acknowledgement. Here, Lord, is what I have done according to your word. Now, that's still enough right there to lead you to the pit of despair. But you're doing so because you know Christ has already bore the judgment. 
So you're simply judging yourself knowing Christ already bore the, bore the punishment, bore the judgment, and you're doing so simply to say, God, I know that I've committed this sin. Thank you that Christ has died for me. Now let me try to pursue righteousness to avoid any chastisement. Because we don't obviously want chastisement. Sometimes we need it, but we don't necessarily want it. Agreed? And I think sometimes uh, chastisement... We always think chastisement is going to be a car wreck or cancer. I think sometimes chastisement is just the, the, the emotional and physical feelings that we can sometimes get from our, our, our guilt. I, th- I think possibly. All right? There's the second judgment. All right, everybody got that? So of Christ, number two, of self. Now number three, page 1233. We're in 2 Corinthians now. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All right. Everybody there? All right. This one is called the judgment of the believer's works. Judgment of the believer's works. Okay, now... Let's look, if you're in, um, if you're in 2 Corinthians, if you look in, I believe it's in chapter 5, where do we see this judgment begin to take place? Okay, yes, there we go. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether he Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your uh, consciences. So this is called the judgment seat of Christ, where the judgment of believers works. This is what he says here. The judgment of believers works, not sins, are in question here. These have been atoned for and are remembered no more forever. So our sins, they've already been paid for. They're not going to be remembered. So we're not going to be judged for that. But every work must come into judgment. The result is reward or loss of reward. But he himself shall be saved. Now, he's got a cross-reference here. 2 Corinthians 5 calls this that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, right? He has here as a cross-reference 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3, I believe it starts in 11. I believe. I've already turned the page, so I don't have the reference in front of me. Okay, well, yeah, we'll start in verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon the foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's works of what sort it is. If any man works abide, which he hath built uh, thereupon, he shall receive a 
See the word? A reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Right? Schofield says this is the, the, the judgment of our works, and our works are going to either prove to be good and will be rewarded, or our works are going to burn up. But even if every single work burns up, we will still be saved. Why? Because Christ has already been judged for us. I can't be judged. Christ has already been judged. Does that make sense? That's of the believer's work. So we have the judgment of Christ. Everybody got that one? Second, self-judgment, right? where we look to ourselves and we agree with God and we, we confess and we, we hopefully try to move away from it. Next, of the believer's works. Right? Now, what, here's the fourth one, page 1036. Oh, guess where we are? Matthew 25. Matthew 25. All right. Now, he doesn't necessarily, well, he, he kind of, uh, he doesn't really name it in the paragraph as it specifically, but this is often referred to as the, Genti- the judgment of Gentile nations. The judgment of Gentile nations. And I'm going to read the paragraph. Page 1036 or Matthew 25. You'll, you should be able to find the under there. All right. Everybody good? Here's how it reads. This judgment is to be distinguished from the judgment of the great white throne. Here there is no resurrection. The persons persons judged are living nations. No books are opened. Three classes are present, sheep, goats, and brethren. The time is at the return of Christ, and the second scene, and the scene is on the earth. All these particulars are in contrast with Revelation chapter 20. The test in this judgment is the treatment accorded by the nations to those whom Christ here calls my brethren. These brethren are the Jewish remnant who will have preached the gospel uh, in the kingdom uh, to all the nations during the tribulation. The test in Revelation 20 is the possession of eternal life. And then that's all he says here. All he says here. He doesn't go into great detail, but he believes this is a judgment upon the Gentile nations. Now he believes this is how they treated the Jewish remnant who preached during the tribulation. That's a far reach. I don't know about that. He believes that the the judgment here is upon how the Gentile nations treat the Jewish remnant who preaches during the tribulation. So it is is a judgment on Gentiles on how they treat the the, uh, Jews, but it's how they treat the specific Jews, the Jewish remnant who preaches during the tribulation. That's his, again, I don't know about that, but that's how he interprets it. I, I like a much more general approach, Gentiles and how they treat the Jews, all right? Now, how that all works out, I don't know, because it leads to a million, <laughs> a million problems, but okay, all right. So, are we, are we good to go there? We good? All right, what's the first one? Judgment of Christ. Second, self. Third, believer's works. Fourth, Gentile nations of the Gentile nations, right? And when we say nations, 
just so that we ver- clarify. We're not, don't think America, don't think a, a country, think of nations as an, a group of people or an ethnic group. In this case, you're dealing with the ethnic, ethnic group of Gentiles, right? Referred to as nations, okay? All right, now you're ready for the next one? Page 861, and immediately you'll know, wait a minute, we just left the New Testament completely. We're in the book of Ezekiel. All right, page 861. Ezekiel, anybody know what chapter? Ezekiel chapter 20, I believe. This is 20. Yes, Ezekiel chapter 20. And if you're using the Schofield Reference Bible, you'll note right above verse 33, he has a heading. And guess what it's called? The future judgment of, drumroll please, Israel. The future judgment of Israel. All right, this one, now let's just stop here for a second and do a little bit of thinking. I think all of you are probably familiar with a judgment on Christ for our sin, right? I mean, that's kind of like Christianity 101. You're probably at least partially familiar with the idea that we are to examine ourselves. We are to judge ourselves to some level. I think we're okay with that. I think you've probably at least heard of a judgment on the believer's works because everyone knows 1 Corinthians 3. I think we're pretty good with that. I think we, the Matthew 25, I don't know what you've done with it in your theology in the past, but we're at least familiar with it. I would argue that there's probably great ignorance on this one. I would argue. Now, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion on the judgment of Israel. So let's, we, we may want to do a little bit of work here, okay? So let's start in verse 33, right? Now let's just read some of these scriptures um, here, and then we'll read the paragraph and see what we want to do with this one. This one leads to lots of questions, and I'm not sure I'm going to have good answers, but let's see what we can do. You ready? Ezekiel chapter 20, starting verse 33. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, And with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand and with a scattered out arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face. Like I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. This seems to be somewhat regathering, bringing all of Israel together to plead with them. I don't know if I get judgment here. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. What happens in the next verse? And I will cause you, everybody look at verse 37. I will cause you to... Pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. 
There is going to be some judgment here when it says pass under the rod. That's an interesting phrase. What do you think that means, pass under the rod? Maybe a a measuring stick or a rod of judgment, but you're going to come under it. And what's going to happen to some? They're going to be purged out. They're going to be removed. So this judge, what's the purpose of this judgment? To purify Israel. To purify Israel. Now, this is what Schofield has to say about this one. Are you ready? The passage is a prophecy of the future judgment upon Israel regathered from all nations uh, into the old wilderness of, of the wanderings. The issue of this judgment determines who of Israel in that day shall enter into the land for kingdom blessing. Now, he doesn't offer any greater detail, but he seems to uh, state this, that um, this is really going to be a purifying of Israel before they go where? Into the kingdom. So, I, yeah, I, I think it's the millennial kingdom. I mean, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm, don't, don't, don't say it's, I, I'm, we have, I don't think we've asserted or been able to prove that it sounds right. So don't, I don't think we should jump to any conclusion. Um, if, if, you, if you look at some of the verses that follow what we've read so far, do you see any maybe clue of where this could possibly take place? Do you have any clue? Do you see anything that jumps out at you? Well, that's what that's what I'm asking. That's what I'm. Yeah, that's what I'm asking. When, when you look at the rest of the verses, do you see something that would be like, ah, that's not going to work? Because that would that would tell you that this is a historical one. Schofield believes it's a future one. Do you see anything there that would be like, ah, I don't know if that works anywhere else other than a future one? Verse 30, uh, we, we've looked at uh, verse 38, verse 39. As for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, go ye, serve ye, go ye, serve ye, every one his idols. And hereafter also, if you will not hearken unto me, but pollute ye my holy name, no more with your gifts and with your idols. For in my holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land serve me. There will I accept them. There will I require you offerings and the first fruits of your oblations with all your holy things. I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people, gather you out of the countries wherein you have been scattered and I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I shall bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I lifted up mine hand to give it to your fathers. And there shall you remember your ways and all your doings wherein you have been defiled. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord whom I have wrought with you for for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, not according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Now first, you should already already see one clue. What's the one clue? Because it's repeated numerous times. House of Israel, which typically refers to the northern kingdom, right? Well, that 
that, that would not really fit a historical perspective, right? If it was the house of Judah, that would fit coming out of Babylonian captivity. Does that make sense? All right. I'm not saying it's perfect. House of Israel can may have a more generic perspective, but even coming out of Babylonian captivity, I don't know if that really describes them. Because they came out of Babylonian captivity and it didn't take long that God had to do what for them? He had to send prophets to them because they weren't doing what? They weren't building the temple. They were busy building their own houses. And then what happens? Well, we know something happens relatively, I mean, if, I, I guess depending on how you want to call relatively quick, but they come out of Babylonian captivity and the next thing you know, they're under Roman captivity. So clearly they fall right back into sin. So I, I, if, if, if it was a purging, it wasn't a very good one, right? So Schofield puts it as a future one. All right, so what's number one? Of Christ. Number two, self. Number three, believers' works. Number four, Gentile nations. Okay, next, of Israel. And then 1328. 1328. No, uh, page 1328. Yeah. Page 1328, which is the book of Jude. 1328, which is the book of Jude. All right. Everyone ready? Here we go. Tell me when you're there. Book of Jude. Okay. All right. If you look at uh, verse 6, I think uh, maybe that's the verse he's referencing here, uh, but you'll see. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved an everlasting change under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. This is the judgment of fallen angels. The great day is the day of the Lord. Um, the great day is, is the day of the Lord, years, and the proceed, and preceding the final judgment. Okay. Um, or I'm saying, hang on. All right, let me read this again. The great day is the day of the Lord, as the final judgment upon Satan occurs after the thousand years, and preceding the final judgment. Um, it is basically as to the time that other fallen angels were judged uh, with him. Uh, Christians are associated with Christ in this judgment. So uh, basically they're putting this, I guess, again, at the end of the thousand years, I'm assuming. This is where they believe. Uh, I guess that's where this happens. All right. The judgment of the fallen angels. And if, just, if you'll look at 1 Corinthians 6, 3 really quick, he does mention it. 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. All right, and what do you read there in 1 Corinthians 6, 3? What do you see? We shall judge angels. All right. Somehow we're going to be involved in this judgment. I don't know exactly how that works. I don't know why we're involved in it. It makes no sense to me, but okay. All right. 
So a judgment of angels. He also, Schofield connects this judgment of angels with 2 Peter 2.4. So look at 2 Peter 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4, tell me what you find there. We only have one more to go. Yeah, they're being held for judgment. So some angels are in chains waiting for judgment. And we, we talked about it in Jude 6, or Jude, uh, in Jude verse 6. We talked about it in the book of Jude, who those angels could be and possible, all the theories, and we went all day on all of that, okay? So everybody remember that? All right, then last but not least is page 1351, which you probably have an idea which book this is going to be found in. Book of Revelation. And you probably know where it's going to occur. This is the great white throne. So he refers to this as the judgment of the unbelieving dead. That's what he refers to this as. Okay. Here we go. You ready? 1351. He he describes this as the final judgment. And this is what he says. The subjects are the dead. As the redeemed were raised from among the dead 1,000 years before and have been in glory with Christ during that period, the dead can only be the wicked dead from the beginning to the setting up of the great white throne in space. As there are degrees in punishment. Now, I don't agree necessarily with that, okay? The dead are judged according to their works, the book of life is there is there to answer such a plead. Uh, their works uh, for justification, um, an awful blank where their name might have been. So look at Revelation chapter 20. Let's look at everything about this judgment. Revelation chapter 20. We start in verse 11. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Here we go. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. They're going to be judged according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Everybody getting the idea? Okay. And death and hell was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And the idea is if your name is not in the book of life, then you have to be judged according to your works. And the concept would be, if your name is in the book of life, you are judged on the basis of Christ's works. Does that make sense? Now, what what does that once again destroy? That destroy, everybody understands how that destroys lordship salvation. Lordship salvation tells you you have to look to what to prove that you're saved? Your works. And guess what you should say? 
I'm not going to be judged according to my works. I'm going to be judged according to the work of Christ. Because all of my failures, all of my sin has already been judged. Right? My, I, I am not going to stand before God on the basis of my works. So if I'm not going to stand before God on the basis of my works, other than the works judgment, if we say that that's a separate one, but that's not going to determine my salvation, is it? So if someone comes to you and go, well, if you're a Christian, you should be doing this, 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 and this, and this. I'd be like, um, you're now going to try to use my sin to prove that I'm not a Christian, but I believe in Christ. All my sins have been paid for. And when I stand before God, I'm not going to be judged according to your test. I'm going to be judged according to his test. His test is more severe than your test. And guess what he's going to say when I am judged according to his test? Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Why? Because it's the works of Christ. Now, if your name is not written in the book of life, then God can look at your works. And what, we, what is he going to see when he looks at your works? Failure. And then therefore there is judgment. Those are what Schofield lays out as the seven judgments in scripture. Now, just make sure we understand. Does everyone believe there's seven? No. Some people believe there is just one. I have a problem with being just one. Because those sound like very different judgments, do they not? Yeah, I mean, they sound like very different judgments. Very different judgments. Now, I guess you could try to group this all into one event, but it would just seem... It doesn't fit because some of these events seem to be taking place in completely different time and in different location. Yeah, exactly, right. But then they would say the thousand years is not a real thousand years and we, then we can get into all of that uh, never-ending debate. There is what we have. So what, what, what can we just take from this? Well, because it is Christ the King Sunday, shows you who's the king. Christ. And he's the one who will sit upon the throne and he's the one who will judge, right? So it, it makes us realize that. And, and it makes us realize if there is a judge, if there's someone who sits on the throne, if there's someone who is king, if there's someone who is ruler, and if that ruler has a law, and I know that law is what's laid out in scripture, immediately I know I'm condemned and I'm doomed and I am damned and it's over. So my only hope is there's got to be some way that I can stand before that king and be declared holy and saved. And we only believe the only way is the one who does the judgment is the one who provided the work that's perfect enough to withstand the judgment. Correct? And that judgment uh, and that work is imputed to us by faith, by faith alone. So um, one of my friends from Nebraska was, he sent me this thing. I guess it was a slide that they were showing at their church, which is lordship, 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 lordship. You know, oh my goodness. And they had some slide that was like faith equals justification plus works. And I will argue faith equals justification and the imputed work of Christ to my account. If you're going to say it's plus works. Now, I do, I do believe. I am called to good works. We all agree to that, right? I am called to them. 
But when I am called to good works, will I ever fulfill those? Even if I do the supposed good works, they're never going to be done in a good way because I am a corrupt human with even my motive. Sometimes I can do good things for wrong motives. Sometimes you can do the wrong thing for the right motive, right? We're, we're convoluted and complicated because of a sinful nature. But guess what? By faith alone, I am justified because there are works that are accredited to my account, and those are the perfect works of Jesus Christ. So by faith, I do get works. It's just not my works. It's the works of Christ that are imputed to my account. Those are the seven judgments. You can, you can work on those if you want. You can do more with them. But if you're going to talk about judgment, you have to see. I would just argue, if you look at Matthew 25 and you look at Revelation 20, there's no way you're going to say those are the same judgments. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 3, there's no way that's the same judgment. So if you take Matthew 25, Revelation 20, and 1 Corinthians 3, I think we can all agree that those are three radically different judgments. There's just no way to make them the same. So I... And then the Ezekiel thing, that clearly that's a... That's something clearly just, dead. that's about Israel. That's not about anyone else. So I don't even, you know, that's got to be different than everything else. So there you have it. And that is, uh, well, the end of Christ the King Sunday. So next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. So if you want to write these down, the scriptures for next Sunday, so you can get a head start if you so desire. I'll be talking about it on podcast this week, um, or trying to, depending on how, how I want to work it. But um, hang on, let me go to if I can get there. Give me one second. Here we go. I'm going to go to next Sunday here. And that will be December the 3rd. It's the first Sunday of Advent. And the readings are First is Isaiah 63, verses 16 and 17, verse 19, and chapter 64, 2 through 7. Six, you can just say 63, 16 through 19. I know they don't have verse 18, but you can include it. And then 64, 2 through 7. That's the first reading. The psalm is Psalm 80, verses 2 through 3, 15 through 16, and 18 through 19. The second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And the gospel reading is Mark 13, 33 through 37. Those are the readings for next Sunday. Now, what we will do, the goal is, now some Sundays, we, we, this, this, the same thing happened last time. There's some Sundays where we're going to have to dedicate three hours to this stuff. I mean, well, how do we do with Matthew 25? And I, there's just some, sometimes. But we're going, to, we're going to be, we'll be bringing in some of the tabernacle stuff while we're doing the uh, lectionary stuff. And then we'll, we'll add in other stuff as well. Some Sundays, it'll be just one reading. Some Sundays, I'm going to do all the readings and try to put them together because I love doing that. Some Sundays, I won't do that. Um, and we'll just see. The goal is... Just try to do the readings that whole week leading up to the Sunday. And then, you know, we're, we, all enter in, we all enter the conversation with somewhat knowledgeable of what's there. And then we'll see what we can, we can find. The, the thing is, we don't really know what's going to happen, right? You don't really know. 
Because every Sunday, it's a different, it's a different set of readings. We don't ever know what we're going to stumble upon. In some ways, I can't, I'm grateful that we did it that year. Because when we, we, I mean, that reading that day on Jeremiah 31, I didn't think it was a big deal. I was like, oh, it talks about, the, let's just do a thing on covenant theology. No big deal, right? I know how to, I can teach covenant theology in my sleep, okay? So, and then all of a sudden I realized, because now we're reading the passage over and over and over and over and over all week, I'm, uh, all of a sudden in the middle of the sermon, I realized, what am I taught? What am I doing? This is a different covenant than the one from before. And covenant theology claims it's just a different administration. And I'm like, no, it's a completely different one. And not only that, it's not with us, okay? So then I'm like, I got all kinds of problems, right? So, um, but that's, that's the beauty of it. We don't know what we're going to find. It's like a whole year in front of us that's going to take us through seasons, it's going to take us through all of these very important concepts, and every week is going to be a different, a different thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll just see what happens, and we'll see who knows. But it gives us something, it gives us, a very, it gives us an anchor, because in my view, 2024 is going to be an absolute, I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be a crazy year, so... I think this gives us something to anchor to, and uh, that I think it'll be a positive thing. All right, but there you go. That's the conclusion of Christ the King Sunday. Um, you can spend some time, if, you know, thinking about Matthew 25 and what all the implications of all of that is. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. We thank you that we have had the opportunity to just meditate on this very difficult passage. We've got to look at a lot of other passages in regards to judgment. Lord, the one thing we know is you're a holy, righteous God, and we know that you will judge. And we know that if we stand and our works, we will be condemned because our works are not in any way sufficient to stand against your law and your holiness. But we thank you that you sent your son, not only to pay for our sins, but by his actions and his obedience that has been imputed to us by faith alone. We are grateful for that, thankful for that. And we pray that because of such gratitude that we almost have a willingness to submit and surrender to Christ as king because that is who he is. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And God's people said,